This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to The Bunker, your need-to-know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm your host, Raphael Baer. The reputation of the Italian mafia is changing. A lot of people know the Hollywood version, which starts with young Vito Corleone in Sicily, then going to America and becoming the Godfather. But in reality, the history of criminal organizations goes back many generations and is deeply intertwined with Italian culture and politics. And now there's a whole new generation, sometimes called the baby bosses, who don't stick to the traditional codes of honor and secrecy. They combine the ultra-violence of street gangsters with the performance style of TikTok and Instagram influencers. Here to discuss this phenomenon and the evolution of the mafia across Italy is Dr. Anna Sergi, professor of criminology at the University of Essex and author of, among other works, Chasing the Mafia, Ndrangheta, Memories and Journeys. Welcome to The Bunker. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Professor Sergi, before we get down to the subject more generally, I think it will probably help our listeners, it'll certainly help me, if we just define some of the terms, because people use this word mafia to describe all sorts of different things, and I'm aware that there's the Cosa Nostra, there's the Camorra, there's the Andrangheta. Perhaps just before we get down to the details, you could just help us understand what these different things actually mean and what they represent. Yes, so indeed, mafia is the umbrella term where we identify criminal organizations, some of which very old, that mostly in Italy are after money and after power. So that's probably the easiest definition. So they're not just interested in making illegal money, but they're also interested in establishing themselves as credible territory actors, let's put it that way. So whether it's politics or it's control of territory by economic means, various clans do different things. So we have several ones which are defined mafias in Italy. Cosa Nostra is the Sicilian one, is probably the most famous. Dendrangheta is the Calabrian one, which is currently on everyone's mouth because it's apparently the wealthiest and the strongest and, uh, you know, the the one that is more present elsewhere. The Camorra, which is not an organization actually, but it's the way we call the clans from the regional Campania around the city of Naples. So these are more uh, gangster style, often fighting with each other and they are probably the most difficult to pin down in a way and then there are several smaller mafias here and there in Italy with different names. Interesting you said so many interesting things there already (laughs) one about uh, how integrated it is with the pursuit of power how integrated it is with a very deep history and intertwined with aspects of Italian culture and I wonder one of the things that I'm intrigued about is that particular point where the nexus of the sort of criminal fraternities and state power, because at, at one level, I imagine it's about corruption and access to public funds, but also 
I get the impression it's almost there's a sort of parallel provision of public service. So there's, it's actually it rivals the state. Mm, I wouldn't say a rival. Okay. I wouldn't say a rival. It's not a rival. Mafias need the state to exist. They just need the state to don't do what all that it can do. <laughs> it's not to be that efficient. So mafias do need the state to be efficient when it comes to assigning public contracts. So they, that needs to be an efficient way of the state to manage in that. But they also need the state to be unable to provide a clear face. So what's the state anyway? So if you ask many people in some areas of Italy, you get very different answers. The state is not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily someone or anyone that helps you. It has many faces. It punishes you. It's inefficient. So within this ambiguity that people feel towards the state, mafias can exercise a concurrent power more than an alternative power. So we side where with those provision of service, the people feel closer to their needs. And they might be very different services. I mean, and for some people is a, a getting a quick turnaround on a passport application because this, you know, the bureaucracy of the state is too inefficient. But for other people is actually getting an advantage illegally over certain things, which is something that the state cannot do anyway. So I think it needs to be said that it's not a strategic way. Not all mafias stay there and say, oh, now we're going to do this strategically and substitute the state. That's not what happens. It's mostly taking advantage of opportunities as they present themselves. That's very interesting. It sounds as if you know, it's hard to distinguish you know, which came first, the sort of political debilitation mm. and weakness of those state structures and the mafia culture to the extent that exactly as you, you just described it, the criminal organisations need politics to exist at just the right sort of point of equilibrium between totally dysfunctional, I mean, if there was no state at all, it becomes very difficult, but it can't be too functional. And it's almost a sort of <laughs> unspoken negotiation. Absolutely. And uh, it is, it, it comes with stratification. I mean, it's, uh, this is nothing new. Mafias have existed in Italy for over 200 years. So it, you can imagine how stratified this is. But it's mostly a situation where understanding the psychology behind mafias is probably what helps us. Mafias like order. They are not chaotic agents of, you know, of hell. They are organizations that like the status quo. They don't like change because change forces them to adapt. They don't like when new progress is made on something that upsets their order. So if you think of order as your ultimate goal, then you need a state that is stagnant, that is unable to progress, that is just about lazy enough to keep existing, but without really fighting against you or without really, you know, making it difficult or, you know, undermining this philosophy of order. So when mafias reach their ultimate stadium, which most mafias have in Italy at this stage, you see order, you don't see chaos, you don't see, you know, you see a status quo where people start thinking, and you know, I very much relate to this because I come from Calabria, I come from a mafia region, I study this because of where I'm from, and a lot of the things that I grew up thinking they were normal, turned out they weren't normal. They were normal just in that area. So it's normal that this doesn't work. It's normal that you can't ask for support to the law enforcement. It's normal that, you know, a lot of things are normalized because normalization brings order. But then the moment you step out of this and you look at it from outside, you see that actually a lot of these things are not normal. And, you know, if there was a stronger state, 
we would be seeing different dynamics. And that importance of order, which is incredibly conservative in a way and culturally conservative, and I'm just fascinated to know, how did that work in the fascist period under Mussolini when the state, by reputation, did actually get its act together enough to make the trains run on time at least? So that's a myth that Mussolini actually managed to do something about the mafia. Mussolini did not do anything about the mafia. Mussolini declared that he was doing something about the mafia and then sent a bunch of people to bonify, as he would say, the territory. But what eventually happened is that it, it, as always happens with this uh, type of uh, regimes, he didn't actually understand what mafias were. And he assumed that it was something a lot more visible than it was, than at the time was. And what effectively that meant, both in Sicily and in Calabria and in other parts of Italy, is that the real mafiosi joined the fascist party. So they became part of the majority that ruled the government. And that's actually been a very strong reaction and in a way of winning one. I mean, if you enter the party, you are protected. So that's what happened. So in a way, mafias are often siding with the winning political party. That's uh, unfortunately the history of Italy since even after the fascist war. You know, we had um, mafiosi siding with the Christian Democrats, which ruled Italy for over 20 years, then with uh, Forza Italia and uh, Berlusconi's party, and we know how that went. And now, you know, some of the parties who are in government have very dubious relationship with, uh, you know, very apical mafia members. And so how does that work? I mean, because the reputation for Italian politics, certainly after the war, was, you know, constant rotating governments that didn't last very long. In that sense, you get the impression that actually the sort of the mafia connection is is one of the more consistent elements of the function of of Italian politics. But how does that work then in terms of law enforcement? You know, the fact that there is still some and sometimes quite successful law enforcement. Absolutely. But this goes to show, so two problems here. One problem, Italian politics always had a problem in reaching out the peripheries, which is not only an Italian problem. But Italy post-war didn't manage to create the sense of unity from Sicily all the way to the north. We are talking about two very distinctive histories here. So in that sense, having politicians who knew the territory and who presented themselves as credible bridges between the territory and the centre of Italy seemed like a good idea. Law enforcement, on the other hand, with in Italy very strong anti-mafia prosecution, which is the core of the anti-mafia power in Italy, having very strong prosecutions, is unbelievably good at it. I mean, we are constantly having success. But this goes to show that the success is only at the level of contrast, is not at the level of understanding and preventing these behaviors from, you know, spreading in a way. So there has always been a problem in Italy with connecting anti-mafia action on the repressive side and anti-mafia action on the social side. Would it be going too far then to suggest, if I've understood what you just said, correctly, that actually there's sort of the anti-mafia, you know, the prosecutorial model when it works, derives from a sort of pan-Italian Republican ideal of an, one idea of Italy that is actually a, a po- different to that more you know, pre-Risorgimento, different sort of fractured idea of Italy. 
Absolutely. So we, the, the anti-mafia system, the way we know it, comes in the late 80s, nine, beginning of the 90s, which is the moment in which Italy is stepping from bipolar uh, party system into what we call the new republic, which is fragmented party system and an idea of inclusion of all realities of Italy, not just the one based in Rome. So creating anti-mafia squads that are not just in Sicily, not just in the south, but everywhere in Italy, which is what we have today, assumes that the problem of mafia is Italian, is not southern Italian, which is true in practice, and that all Italian forces need to be able to react to this and not just leave it to the southern Italian ones. So let's then come on to the, the younger generation then, because it, my understanding is you know, they, they've been called baby bosses, the, the, the perception is <laughs> these sort of wild younger generation, that partly that came about because of the success of prosecutions, that if you locked up enough of the older generation, then a bunch of wild kind of Instagram hoodlums took over. So maybe <laughs> you could just sort of explain a little bit what that phenomenon is and what it seems to represent in relationship with the older, more established, in quotes, mafia. So I am the kind of social scientist that is very critical of believing in big changes and sudden changes. So the new generations, the Gen Z, but even Gen X of mafias, let's say, behave like the generation that they belong to. So we can expect the same trends, the same use of social media that anyone in that generation. It's not that the mafia has its own way of using it. But what is peculiar, first of all, is different mafias are using different mediums differently for a number of reasons that have to do with which mafia they belong to or they want to belong to. And I think here there are two key concepts, three key concepts that are important. One, reputation. What does it mean for mafia to have reputation uh, is probably one of the most studied phenomenon of all times. Mafia reputation is what brings them the money, it what brings the resilience, it what keeps them alive. So that reputation is the reason why new generations are attracted to mafias in certain territories more than others, and they keep fueling the culture. The second concept, let's say, is secrecy. Mafias are supposed to be secret. They're not supposed to post themselves on TikTok. And this is something that in some uh, groups you find very much respected still, so whereby the new generation has a double life. Their identity online is not their identity on offline because they inherited a strong sense of this value of secrecy. And you can have the situation where someone internet network, so who follows them, who comments on their post, is criminal network as well. So they can be used to understand the bigger picture, but the content itself is non-mafia related. And then there is a third one, a third concept, which is the concept of performance. Depending on who you are and which mafia you are in, in a way, you use socials to perform your own idea of what being mafia is and your own values. And again, this changes depending on which mafia you're looking at. The Ndrangheta is extremely secretive, so you do find younger generations online, but their posts are probably a little bit more well disguised, I would say. The Camorra instead is very much about building an identity on performance, on how you dress, how you sing, what you say. It's always been like that, even for the older generation, to intertwine recruitment, let's say, with singing uh, the songs of the Camorra, which a certain type of message, a certain type of culture around the group was already there in the older generation, is, is there with the younger generation. 
there seems to be a tension between certain things that are constant, but are just finding their new iteration online. So as you say, there's a kind of Instagram influencer culture, which actually just fulfills the old role of establishing status. You want to be known, you want to be feared, but you also don't necessarily want to advertise the fact that you're a criminal uh, to the prosecutors. So you have to get that balance right. But then also there's the sense that some aspect of that has actually corroded the old codes of honor and secrecy in ways that feel, I mean, this is going to sound like a ridiculous comparison, but as a journalist, it feels almost like the way that those of us who used to work in newspapers and print media <laughs> talk about online journalists going, they don't understand the rules. They don't do it properly. They're not proper reporters. They just write anything. They just make it all up. You know, you hear these testimonies from the older gangsters saying, these kids are completely wild. They're totally out of control. And they think, well, Sort of everyone's always said that about the younger generation, but also maybe something very substantial is happening to the culture. It is. It is happening. And I think it's, uh, I can imagine the same conversation you just had with yourself in some mafia family, because obviously there is an element where you have, for example, uh, nephews who are extremely well versed into the use of TikTok and uh, grandparents who can't write. Okay, so we have that gap there. So of course there is a tension there and there is tension precisely for because the main value of mafia as secret organization again is secrecy. So this constantly jeopardizes secrecy. So if you post yourself doing whatever, you are jeopardizing secrecy. You are showing who you're friends with. You are showing the criminal network within the online network. Also presumably you're you're telling rivals literally where you are. If yeah, you post a picture yeah. of yourself in a nightclub and someone wants to come and hit you, then they go, great, we know exactly where it is, let's go. And more importantly, you create motives for feuds. You create motives for people to fight with one another and sometimes it gets really you know, strange when you see who comments on the post and say, okay, is this a rival clan? Is this someone that doesn't like you being out with that girl? So small things can actually trigger quite a lot of responses. And the online world is all about triggering responses so definitely and the use of violence let's not forget the use of violence violence is a precious very very limited resource for mafia groups you can't be as violent as you want because you're gonna be stopped day two so showing cult for violence or even sometimes actual violence on tiktok or on instagram or wherever is gonna get attention and this is something that the new generations are still managing because violence seems cool for generations of mafiosi to be it's always the case. You are attracted to the to you know boasting who you are. I'm a mafioso. I or I live here. Listen to me. I'm important. And at the same time, if you show that kind of cult for violence and the even use of violence, you're going to attract attention. And again, that's something that mafia groups have learned to really tune down on the violence. That's very interesting. That sort of leads me to another question I wanted to ask, which is about the dynamic between the sort of the performance of being a mafiosi in on whether it's on TikTok or Instagram, even by subtle codes, but people who see this content, they know what's going on. And the consumption of all the popular culture that has kind of glamorized the mafia, you know, there was the, the TV show Gamora, but also presumably people are watching things like Sopranos and the, the American versions of, of that. It's intriguing, you get the sense that to some extent, art is just describing life, but then also that's creates a feedback loop where life starts to imitate the arts. Absolutely. And if you see some of the content created on TikTok by people who are Im imbued or 
either inside the mafia culture or close to it, there is quite a lot of back and forth with content borrowed from the news, content borrowed from media, from different, from movies, but even from other countries. I mean, some of the trap music that I've seen done in Calabria, for example, by the son of a mafia boss, an 18-year-old guy who has a thing for trap music, very much seems like, I don't know, downtown New York <laughs> in the 80s. That's really interesting. And, and I, I got a hint of that, actually, in one of the things I watched in preparation for this, the, the fact that they, a lot of it, you know, there's, there's borrowing from the you know, West Coast US gangster culture, but also an area that I know much better because I used to be a foreign correspondent in Russia and Moscow and I had my own encounters with the Russian mafia, which you know, also sort of tried to imitate but uh, other mafias and had its own culture. There's this strange sense of the sort of globalization within a criminal context. And I wonder to what extent the older generation of mafia are also resisting that in the way that conservative older generations resist globalization in any culture. They go, this isn't sort of indigenously Italian mafia culture. This is the wrong kind of gangster culture. I think this tension happens everywhere, of course, but there is one element that stands out, which is the reputation of mafias. You are not here because you are inherently good. You are here because you are the son of someone. You have a surname. That surname means something. So at some point you will, especially in the Ndrangheta, this is what I see. Up until you are 18, 20, you can be stupid as online. But at some point your surname will catch up with you if you want to be in this business. And the surname means a certain adherence to the rules. So I think a bit like you would expect in certain more conservative societies, or even in, uh, without going into conservative society, in family dynasties that rule the world, right? So thinking about Trump. So at some point, fine, okay, you do whatever you want until you are 20, you are a hot-headed, whatever. But if you bring my surname out, that surname comes with legacy. The legacy is what makes, it's what makes you who you are. So don't forget that. So there is an element of that which is still extremely strong, especially in Sicily and in Calabria. That's very interesting. The sense that the reputation part of the three different sort of functions, the traits that you described earlier, for that to be sustainable requires a kind of pseudo respectability that you achieve. And presumably that's also what enables a nexus with politics. So in order to be a mafiosi in politics, you have to wear the nice suit. You have to know how to do You have to, exactly as you said earlier, you can't just go for kind of wild, bloodthirsty, indiscriminate violence. You do menace, but you hold back the actual violence. And if these kids are going completely berserk all the time, they're never going to get into politics. My feeling is that there is an element of self-censoring at some point. So those who keep this very obvious social life will be spit out at some point of the system or if they want to get into the mafia system they will have to tune it down i mean it's it's always been the case it was the case even with the older generation in a different maybe not with social media but in general with you know traveling and showing yourself and whatever so we always had this generational tension this is just another generational tension which will be eventually dealt with if the family is strong enough by the way so that's what you say your sense is that while there is something very substantial going on. It's a 21st century digital world we're in now, all the old hierarchies across everywhere, not just in the criminal world, but in media and politics, it's all being disrupted. But that there is 
enough sort of resilience in the old codes that if the people want to carry on being full-time criminal organizations, they're going to have to adapt to the way it used to be done. Absolutely. I mean, I wish this could be <laughs> the point where we see the end of it, but we're talking about very old and resilient organizations, which have all they have stable is their name. Their surname is cash. Their surname is currency. You can't trade that kind of currency, just, you know, trash it online. So my feeling at this stage is that, of course, the, the real issue that I, I think with this mafia culture online is that it reaches out a lot more people than before. So it's a matter of scale. So it's a matter of normalizing certain behaviors to the point of making them transparent to the bigger public. So if we normalize violence, if we normalize, you know, the cult of arrogance, which is mafia culture, if we normalize this idea of conflict where we are better than they tell you we are, because that's the message, the state hates us, but we are here to stay. That's the message. I think that there is a risk for more impressionable young people to actually normalize mafia culture. But then there is also a possibility there for anti-mafia. I mean, on TikTok, you don't just have mafia, you have also a very strong anti-mafia discourse. Quite a lot, actually. Now, um, we're running out of time. I have two questions, really. One of them relates exactly to this point about how the forces of conservatism interact with this new, fast-evolving mafia culture. And it's interesting that we've, a couple of times we've covered this idea that this is a feature of Italian social order and culture that predates the, the post-war republic. It predates the Risorgimento. I mean, it's old. And it's, it strikes me, perhaps the only institution that is older is the Catholic Church. And as a force for conservatism, as something that, you know, at least mafia families, they pay lip service to, they are part of. That. How does that work as a sort of a moral order that, you know, I mean, the church is not supposed to be in favour of, obviously, indiscriminate killing. So just talk me through how that works. <laughs> well, the church has, a very, has had a very ambiguous role with mafia power. Uh, we had priests who were, who are still under uh, charge in prison for facilitating mafia power. And I think the mafias and church meet precisely at the seeking order situation. The church is happy if no one is shooting each other. And the church is happy if, especially smaller places, if the persons who are also involved with mafia power are going to church and are somehow maintaining a good face. We call it a good face, a clean face, which is basically the idea that on the surface everything works. So the church has not always been the most outspoken. Then you have fantastic church work, including the one at the basis of the main Italian NGO, which is Libera, which is headed by a priest, which is instead very much about social justice more generally and therefore sees through this coexistence situation that in many cases we do have between mafia and church and actually is about disorder and not order. It's not about creating, you know, maintaining the status quo, but it's about changing what needs to be changed for us to prosper as human beings. But the two church souls exist together in Italy, as always. 
my last question. Have you ever felt personally unsafe given your your interest and engagement with this stuff? I feel often paranoid, uh, especially when things touch home. So, you know, the latest maxi trial in Italy is from my father's village. So we know the people. Uh, they know that I'm talking about this with the media. It always feels like everyone is watching you at all times, but that doesn't translate into a threat. Strangely, where, where it did translate into warnings, unwanted ones, that was Australia of all places. And that's probably because I stand out more in Australia and um, probably because some of the main families there have my surnames. I am very wary of them, but probably they are very wary of me. So I, I got some messages of, you know, just stop talking about this. But then again, hopefully that stops there. <laughs> well, we're very grateful that you didn't stop uh, and that you yeah. <laughs> came on the Bunker podcast. Professor Anna Sergi, thank you so much for joining us on the Bunker. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making more episodes. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. I'm Raphael Baer, and you are listening to The Bunker. The Bunker was written and presented by Raphael Baer. The producer was me, Eliza Davis-Beard, with audio production by Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.